Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We will spend most of our time in this message in chapter 5, but we will move around a little bit, so keep your fingers limber. Today we're going uh, to continue a series of messages on biblical foundations for change, biblical theological moorings or foundations for change. That is what is necessary to happen in our hearts for us to experience uh, conformity to the image of Christ, which is the great goal of biblical change. Today we're going to talk about gospel motivations, that is, the motivations of the heart are preeminent in uh, understanding and growing uh, in spiritual life. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast in us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And that he died for all, that those who live might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and redeemer. And we pray that the Holy Spirit, who breathed out this word, would breathe into us today uh, the ability, the light we need to see uh, to illuminate both our hearts and the text. And we pray that we might see Jesus and him only. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So what does the Bible say about motives? Why we do what we do? And the central place where God changes us according to the Bible, is at the motivational level of the heart. The heart, as I have often said, is sort of the steering wheel of our lives. It is the center of our being. It is the place where the deepest desires, the affections dwell. And so today we want to talk about motivations and a new lifestyle that flows from a heart that has been renewed in its love for God. Uh, we want to talk about significant behavioral change that flows from significant motivational change. We should therefore expect as we grow in Christ to also grow in our motives 
as we progress in the Christian life. And so I want to talk about what some of those motives are this morning. But the Bible has a lot to say about our motive. And a motive is an underlying reason for any action. And we do know that as people, we can operate from a variety of motivations, some negative, such as pride or anger or revenge or a sense of entitlement or a desire for approval or a fear of disapproval can all be catalysts for the way we act. Any motivation that originates in our sinful fallen flesh does not please God. God even evaluates the conditions of our hearts when we come to him and give anything to him. Selfish motives can hinder our prayer lives. James tells us, when you ask, you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Because our hearts are, as Jeremiah tells us, deceitful, we should always evaluate our motives and be willing to be honest with ourselves about why we are choosing certain actions. We can even preach or minister from impure motives, and certainly God is not impressed. Jesus spoke to the issue in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, 20, Matthew 6 when he said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, Jesus says, get rid of virtue signaling. It ain't happening in my kingdom. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, that's for everybody, by the way. If you do, he says, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So what is the right motivation? Well, we're going to talk about some of the motivations that should be evident in our Christian experience. Uh, our purpose is to please God always, never people. He alone examines the motives of our hearts. But 1 Corinthians tells us that when Jesus comes again, he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. God wants us to know that he sees what no one else in this room can see. He knows why we do what we do, and he desires to reward those whose hearts are right toward him. We can keep our motives pure by examining our hearts with radical honesty and surrendering every part of our hearts to con the control of the Holy Spirit. I'm not telling you uh, often, well, I am telling you that often as a pastor, I'm going to do things and my motives can be askew. And it's so wonderful that the Holy Spirit will show me that. And he will say, your heart is just off the rails. you got to do something about this. And so what I generally do is repent of wrong motives. And they may be some idolatry issues in my own life. Uh, they may be you know, just being in, it's so easy to fall in the professional mode of doing what I do and not remembering why I do it is important. And so I find myself constantly repenting of, even today, of why I stand behind this pulpit and preach God's word to you. It's, it's an ongoing battle. And so it, it happens every day. But here are some specific questions to help us evaluate our motives. If no one ever knows what I am doing, that is like giving or serving or sacrifice, would I still do it? 
nobody ever knows, would I still do it? If there was no visible payoff for doing this, would I still do it? Would I joyfully take a lesser position if God asked me to? Am I doing this for the praise of others or how it makes me feel? If I had to suffer for continuing what God has called me to do, would I continue? If others misunderstand and criticize my actions, will I stop? If those who I am serving never show an ounce of gratitude, never repay me in any way, would I still do it? Do I judge my success or failure based on my faithfulness to what God has asked me to do or how I compare with others who are doing the same thing? Those questions have a way of uncovering why I do what I do, especially within the kingdom of God and within the church. But today I wanted to talk about positive motives, the motives that drive us in the Christian life and that bring about deep change that make us more like Jesus Christ and so Paul gives us one in first second Corinthians chapter 5 and I want to call your attention to verses 14 and 15 look at this for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Um, Martin Luther had a famous expression he used for selfishness. He called it incurvatus in se. And he would say that all of us are curved in upon ourselves. Has anybody ever called you selfish before? Well, you need to get some new friends. No. <laughs> Surely a sibling has called you selfish. Surely your parents have said to you at one time in your life, you're so selfish. You need. And, and we berate people for being selfish. We berate ourselves for being selfish. But how do we get out of it? How do we stop being curved in upon ourselves? Being, uh, feeding our own fat, relentless ego. How do we get, get away from uh, loving ourselves first, being curved in on ourselves, to being curved out in love for others? Well, Paul tells us, doesn't he? What does he say does that? The love of Christ. Now, is it my love for Christ that changes me or his love for me that changes me? And the answer is, first, we love him. Why? Because he first loves us. Then that love transfers into my love of him, which drives me out of myself. Luther argued there's nothing that will melt the hard-hearted, cynical person who is selfish like the love of Jesus Christ. It melts my heart, and it causes me to be curved out of myself. I get out of myself, so to speak. And it is the only thing that has the power to do that. Nothing else can do it. You can try not to be selfish, but you cannot. It's inescapable because of the gravitational pull of sin in our lives. Uh, the center of Paul's life was changed as he realized that one died for all. But when you look at his history, um, 
In his autobiographical passages, the Damascus Road experience is never far, far from Paul's thoughts. Paul, nonetheless here, speaks representatively for all believers caught up in the overarching purposes of God. Paul believes generally, uh, Paul and believers generally are encapsulated within two great elements of the gospel, Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Therefore, anyone who is in Christ is now part of the new creation, and therefore Paul begins to see how Christ um, changes us. Four, in the beginning of verse 14, relates back to Paul's selfless ministry, his selflessness. He says, even if I have been beside myself, it's been for God. And even if he's been self-controlled, it's been for the Corinthians. Nothing was for Paul. It is, he asserts, a life controlled or compelled by Christ's own love. That love is most powerfully seen and discerned in Christ's death for his people and in consequence of which all have potentially died, as Paul had, to self-centered living. And so Paul gives reasons for uh, his ministry, and he says, for Christ's love controls us. That's a very interesting word. The verb implies that which confines or restricts. What is it that puts a leash on my self-love and selfishness? What is it that confines it? What is it that restricts it? It is the love of Christ. Do you find yourself meditating upon, praying with, reading about the love of Jesus for your soul? The power of that love existentially grasped by us has a way of reigning in our selfishness and at the same time pushing us out of ourselves toward other people. As we experience a co-death with Jesus Christ, a burial, and then a spiritual resurrection, anticipating ultimately our bodily resurrection, we enter into a realm in which we are able, through Christ's love, to get out of ourselves. It is worth noting that in his former existence as a Pharisee, um, the compelling force in Paul's life had been zeal or jealousy for the name of Yahweh. A zeal that drove him to destroy the followers of the blasphemer, that is how he saw Jesus as Saul of Tarsus, then. Now love has taken place of that zeal as a controlling force in the center of his being. Thus there emerges from both 11, verse 11 and verse 14 two motives for Paul's ministry. One is the fear of the Lord and the other is the love of Christ. And so Paul tells us that, the, that his comprehension at the Damascus event when he despised the crucified one, addressed, uh, God addressed Paul out of the heavenly glory. And when he saw the glory of the risen Christ, it changed him. He died and then came alive again and became part of the new creation and therefore was moved out of himself. And so the great wonder of Christianity here is that Paul... Um, was delivered from self-centeredness. The next one uh, that I want to talk about, but let me talk a little bit more about this one. The fundamental change that the gospel makes in us is to restore our love and worship of God. 
we exchange the idols of our heart for a better Savior, the only Savior. Having experienced the love of Christ poured into our souls by the Holy Spirit, we find our hearts transformed so that we now love him back in return. It is this new affection for Christ which becomes the fountain or wellspring of our obedience. Now, I know pastors like to preach imperatives and commands of Christ and preach and scold you and bop you over the head constantly about what you ought to do. But you're never going to do it unless your heart is first changed by the love of Christ. John Owen put it this way. We need to keep our hearts full of a sense of the love of God. That is the greatest preservative available to us against the power of temptation in the world. When the love of Christ constrains us to live for him, then we can withstand temptation. Therefore, Owen says, fill your heart with a sense of the love of God in Christ and apply the eternal design of his grace and shed blood to yourself. Accept all the privileges you have in Christ of adoption, justification, acceptance with God. Fill your hearts with thoughts of his beauty and the beauty of holiness as designed by God and made effective by his death. The second motivation that we want is gratitude, being grateful. I remember uh, when I became a teenager and one of the fruits of being a teenager in my world was ingratitude. But that's not far from what the scripture says in Romans chapter one. All of us exchange the creature for the creator and we worship him and we become ungrateful to whom? God. And what reverses that is gratitude. Gratitude for grace given. The scriptures offer one of the motivations for obedience is a spirit of gratitude. We are thankful for God's act of saving us and we express our appreciation through a life which intends to please him. We live for him not in order to get what we really want. We obey him and love him for who he is in himself. We want him. We don't want just the blessings he gives. One of the hard things in my life was when I came to the point in my Christian life one day when I realized that what I was really doing was using Jesus to get a better life. I wanted to be successful. I wanted to be spiritual. I wanted to be a, a, a useful to God and his kingdom. But I worshiped those things more than I did Jesus. And God called my attention to that in a most profound way. He got my attention. Paul tells us in Romans 12:1. Therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In 2 Corinthians verse 8, chapter 8 verse 9, the Apostle Paul speaking of the Macedonian Christians said this, You know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And he said that referring to the Macedonian church who was very, very financially struggling and poor gave this great offering as a gift back to the church in Jerusalem. They gave, Paul said, even beyond their ability. What caused them to do this? Gratitude for grace given. There is a power in the mercy of God. There is a power in the mercy of God. 
And the mercy of God moves us when nothing else will. And so gratitude for grace giving. The Christian life is a joyful response to what God has done for us and what he promises to do for us. And the only way, and I've been saying this kind of over and over in this series, the only way my gratitude grows is when I see my sin, when I see my own despicableness, when I, like Isaiah, say I am undone, and I see that I have nothing to offer him, and I see that I would never love anybody who treats treated me the way I treat him and yet he still loves me and that has a way of uh, fomenting or bringing about or engendering a spirit of gratitude a grateful person gratitude isn't the only motivation but it's a very important motivation and Paul emphasizes that here in this text but there are more motivations the next one is called the promises of coming judgment. Um, a lot of people don't see the idea of judgment and rewards as really being noble enough to be a motivation. But I think they're wrong, and I'll try to explain to you why the Bible says they're very important in it. And so look at, again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and look at verses 9 and 10. He says... So whether we are at home or away, that is, whether we're in this body, away from the Lord, or whether we're at home with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now that makes some people very uneasy because aren't we the ones who preach that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, and here you are talking about judgment. Pastor, what do you mean by the coming judgment? And I'm glad you asked because we're going to talk about that here for a moment. Uh, if I can find my resources on that. Here it is. So at the end... Every person will stand alone, individually, before the judgment seat of Christ, the messianic tribunal, so to speak. We're all going to stand there. And the Bible teaches that we all will experience judgment. Those who have never received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will be judged according to their works and will be condemned and will forever be estranged and ignored by God and will perish eternally. For those of us who are believers, our works will be examined upon the basis of whether or not we had the right motives in doing them. 1 Corinthians 3, if you'll hold your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians 3, I want you to see this. Now, this is at the end of time uh, when this happens, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not before then and not until then. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible tells us uh, in verse 14, if the uh, work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will... Well, let me back up a couple of verses. 
Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verse ten. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master and builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one uh, can lay foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is the day of the Lord, the second coming, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so we are accountable. This passage clearly teaches that we are accountable to the Lord for the way we live our lives now and for the works that we do and that those works should have good motives now let me stand back and try to explain this a little more clearly i hope it's making some of you nervous a little bit i really do i hope it's upsetting some of you because us us grace boys and i'm number one love to believe that well it's really just all jesus I don't have anything I need to do. There's nothing that really depends on me. And yet, Scripture teaches, on the one hand, my judgment's already happened. When Christ died upon the cross, I died with him. And God's judgment and condemnation has been received in Christ. But as a Christian, I will be judged upon the basis of whether or not my works are gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw. A fire will judge them, and either they will be purified by the fire or they will be destroyed by the fire. Now, there is a gradation of reward in the coming kingdom. Uh, the treatment of reward in the New Testament helps us understand where our faithfulness belongs. Our faithfulness is never the condition by which we remain in the covenant, Nonetheless, there is a covenantal reward for those who are faithful. A reward that is related in some manner to our faithfulness. This gradation of reward should be neither overstressed nor understressed. There's a real differentiation on the basis of our faithfulness. Yet at the same time, all renewed people of God receive the fundamental blessing of being in God's presence eternally. Both of these aspects are present in the New Testament. In the vision of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, it is the equal reward of all saints that comes to the forefront. It's prominent. All believers are going to be made perfect and granted equal entrance into the very presence of God himself in heaven, in the heavenly most holy place, which is the entire city. Likewise, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the same reward is given to those who are hired at the 11th hour as to those who have worked the hardest and the longest in Matthew 20. This fundamentally, uh, fundamental equity of rewards flows from our being united to Christ and it is his righteousness that is the basis for our full inheritance. So all believers will receive this. Yet on the other hand, 
Some texts affirm a gradation in reward. Paul draws a contrast between the builders, one of whom is building up God's church on the only possible foundation, Jesus Christ. One of the builders builds with gold and precious stones while the other builds with wood and straw. The works of each will be exposed on the day of judgment. They're quality tested with fire. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. Both are equally saved, but they receive different rewards. So, as with many other biblical metaphors, these images present complementary truth that together express a richer picture than any single image could ever do. Either image on its own is open to misunderstanding, while taken together, both give us the fuller picture. The function of the scriptural teaching of rewards is similarly twofold. The equality of inheritance stresses that all who enter heaven have a glorious reward while the principle of gradation of reward stresses the accountability of saints to God and the certainty of their future vindication by him. On the one hand, God expects fruitfulness from his servants and will hold everyone accountable for their use of the resources and opportunities that he has entrusted to us. While on the other hand, no one who has trusted Christ will ever be disappointed by the inheritance he or she receives. There's only one way to enter the re this reward of eternal life in the close presence of God through faith in Christ that looks to his righteousness imputed to us and depends on his faithfulness, not our own, to bring us to completion. So what I want to get across to you is we're accountable. Some of you have been given with God by God great spiritual gifts and abilities and talents and you haven't used them you have not been involved in the church you kind of you kind of hang around the periphery of the church but you're not in the core of it you're not actively using what God has given you God will hold you accountable for that he will hold us accountable for that. And whatever suffering loss means, I don't know what it means, but the Bible clearly says that. That's why at Spring Meadows we believe every member is a minister. Every member has a calling of God upon their life to have involvement in some kind of ministry using the spiritual gifts and opportunities and resources God has given. And the greater your resources, the greater your accountability. And so that should motivate us. It's not mercenary. It is respecting that we are accountable. And it is a desire to take what has been given to us and use it to please the master. Next one. Let's get off of that one. It made some of us nervous. <laughs> but you know what? Some of you are here today because you needed to hear that. You have been AWOL. You have not been engaged in building upon the foundation that God has given you. And I am calling you today to collapse upon Jesus in repentance and come home to the Savior and give him your life as a living sacrifice and be used by him. Now, there's also a desire to grow in what God has already made us. 
Another motivating factor of obedience, according to Paul, is the logical outworking of God's redemptive work. Through Christ's work, God has made us children and has overthrown our sin. We are to live in keeping with what God has done. To continue to live in sin after we have been freed from sin and enslaved in sin is completely biblically illogical. It is totally illogical. It is to work at cross purposes with God. If the very purpose of salvation is to make us like Jesus um, in his humanity and then to live the opposite way he lived makes no sense. This is the logic which are behind certain statements like this. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God and Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. The imperatives arise out of the indicatives. Insofar as we perceive the truth about God's redemptive work in the world, we will participate gladly in the outworkings of God's purpose. Conversely, if we fail to act in a way consonant with God's will, we are losing the gospel in that way. Desiring to grow. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in union with Christ, he is a new creation. You are a new creation, a new creature. And uh, the old age and all of its thraldom of sin, the flesh, the world is passing away. And the new age has come. The new covenant era of redemptive history is here. God has taken away our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. God has forgiven our sin and remembers them no more against us. God has written his law in our hearts. And we are to continue to walk as new creatures in Christ Jesus, growing in gratitude and in life because of him. And so the gospel gives us great things there. But there's also, and I close with this because it's the last point. <laughs> Look in chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent, he's using metaphors here talking about the physical body. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this body, this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Guy Williams has just finished a, a class on the hope of heaven or the reality of heaven. I don't think I have the title exactly right, but that's what he talked about. 
And you know what hope is in the Bible? Hope isn't, I hope everything's going to work out. Hope isn't uncertainty. Hope in the Bible is as much as you know who you are, you are absolutely certain of the truth of God. That the same God who has taken you to the, to the cross in Jesus, had your sin crucified in Jesus, you were buried with him, you're raised with him now to walk in a new life, and one day you will be resurrected. Uh, if you die before the Lord, Lord comes back, then you go to be with Jesus until he returns. When he returns, you will have a new body equipped for the realities of heaven. First Corinthians talks about it. It's not an earthly body. It's a heavenly body. It'll be like the resurrection body of Jesus, and we will be reunited with that, and that is our end. That is our goal. That is our life, and it will be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, I read a quote by some Puritan on what eternity would be like. He said this. He said, let's say that every thousand years, a bird at the edge of the Grand Canyon, this was an English Puritan, he knew about the Grand Canyon. <laughs> a bird would fly to a seashore, take one grain of sand, take it back, drop it in the Grand Canyon. He said, by the time that that bird emptied every beach of all the sand in the world, eternity would just be beginning. That is our hope, that in Jesus Christ, and that hope purifies us even as he is pure, the Bible tells us. That hope purifies us. We know this, that when we shall see him, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But that hope, that hope drives us. You know, um, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 13 about love being the greatest. Now abides what? Faith, hope, and love. Uh, but love is the greatest. And uh, why? Because hope will one day be realized and it will be reality. Faith will turn to sight. Although Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in a sermon I read, once said, he doesn't think faith will entirely disappear. And I said, well, why? He said this, it won't entirely disappear because once you see the glory of the bridegroom, once you see the beauty of Christ, it will take faith to believe that any wicked people laid hands on him and killed him. He might be right about that. He might be right. But love will abide forever. And so that is what changes us. That's the motivational level. We don't do, we're not mercenaries. We don't serve in order to get back. But the mercy of God, the mercy of God changes us. And remorse for sin has a place in the Christian life, but we need to be sure what it serves. Guilt should drive us to the cross, but grace leads it away from uh, the cross. Guilt makes us seek Christ, but gratitude makes us serve Christ. Guilt should lead to confession, but without a response of love is the motive of renewed obedience. True repentance never matures into fruit. The kindness of God motivates the repentance and changed lives. The love of Christ constrains and compels us to do his will. We won't discover joy that is our strength for Christian service if we have not claimed the mercy that frees us from the guilt of the cross. Mercy stimulates 
gratitude. And that is the only enduring motivation for effective Christian service. Gratitude recognizes the love that never fail, fails or fades and restores confidence in our eternal relationship with Christ. We cannot exercise power, this power, if we are paralyzed with dread, beaten down with unrelenting remorse, burdened by constant guilt, miserable and sad. Thus God intends to take all of the sin and guilt that is ours, bring it to the foot of the cross, lay it down, and then God wants us to stand up, lift up our head, and rejoice in his pardon. That way we will powerfully serve him without the weight of our past burdens. Lasting service comes when we serve God from his acceptance, not for his acceptance. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to distinguish between the motivations and thoughts, and it's a critic of our motivations and thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us today and you would help us understand that uh, there are powerful motives that uh, produce in us biblical change that will last forever. Now, Father, we thank you for speaking to us. We are grateful for the message we have heard, uh, the beauty of the gospel, and we pray that we may give back to you now with joy, uh, with generosity, a portion of that which you have entrusted to us and may it be used to honor and glorify your Son, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.